Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. We bring you an extended episode of the Organist Encores, with a programme exploring the music found on electrical transcription discs and their connection with the theatre organ. This is your host, Robert Hope Jones, with me, a special guest all the way from Tallahassee, Florida, in the United States of America. Transcription discs began with the Vitaphone movie soundtracks, engineered by Western Electric, around 1927. Still, their delivery into homes owes a debt to the genius mind of Major General George Owen Squire, who invented multiplexing in 1910. It allowed multiple signals to be sent down a single telephone line, and visionary Squire saw potential in delivering music directly into homes. In the 1920s, he secured patents on technology to do just that and trialled his system in the homes of New York's Staten Island. In 1922, the North American company Utility Conglomerate acquired the rights to Squire's patents. It formed Wide Radio Inc. to deliver music to their customers, charging them on their electricity bill, a sort of early manifestation of streaming services like Spotify. By the 1930s, radio had made significant advances and households began listening to broadcasts received via the airwaves for free, supported by advertising which put the first nails into Wired Music's coffin. Around 1934, Wired Radio adapted and rebranded as the Muzak Corporation, providing background music for businesses and public spaces. In 1936, Music Associated Program Service began offering a specialised service of customised music programmes for different industries and soon their transcription discs were spinning on the turntables of the country's booming radio networks. It is here where we pick up the story. My special guest is well known on the American theatre organ scene. He's an accomplished organist, a theatre organ recordings archivist who notably compiled the George Wright discography found in William Cole's extensive biography of Wright. Mark Renwick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Robert. It's great to be here. How are things in Tallahassee? They're doing quite well. I trust you are doing well in Hong Kong. Yes, all good here in Hong Kong. Well, I'm really looking forward to our conversation and I'm hoping we're going to shed some light on what I think is a fascinating subject. But before we do that, could you just explain to listeners how you got sucked down the uh, transcription disc rabbit hole, so to speak. Well, sort of the same way many of us got sucked down the theater organ rabbit hole in that my dad happened to, when I was a little kid, he had a, only about a dozen assorted transcriptions he had picked up from a friend of his, and he had a Gerard 301 turntable with a long arm to play them. And I was just fascinated because I loved playing records always, but but these big records really were fascinating to me. And it really wasn't later until eBay when I started buying uh, a collection, buying my own from eBay and other auction sources. Well, you provided all the music today, Mark. So could you just tell us who was playing in that first track? That was Jesse Crawford at the New York Paramount Studio 421 Wurlitzer on a World Program Service disc probably recorded between 1945 and 1947. And was that a typical example of a transcription disc broadcast? That's a, Yes, I would say it was. Uh, it was. That particular one was typical of Crawford, mm-hmm. but there were many other uh, musicians that made this type of disc that represented their own music. So sure, it really yeah. had a cross-section of popular music and light classical music of the day. Mm-hmm. Some other artists that our audience would have heard of, would be the the Dorsey Brothers, Fats Waller, the Ray Noble Orchestra, Bob Crosby Orchestra. They all made uh, records for the same company as Crawford. That's quite a wide gamut of artists. Transcription disc, is there a logical or even technical reason that you know of for using that term? Well, I have spent a lot of time trying to find that out, and uh, I really can't find the origin of that of why that these records were called transcriptions. I can give you a general definition from a history book on the subject. Its primary use was to differentiate programs that had been specially produced for radio broadcasts from commercially available phonograph records. So 
These were records the public could not buy. Uh, they were used by radio stations, and uh, we can also include the movie soundtracks that you mentioned earlier in this general category of transcription discs. Fascinating. Who do you think was likely the first theatre organist to cut one of these transcription discs? Well, in terms of the uh, music library services, I want to differentiate that mm-hmm. from okay. radio shows, pre-recorded radio programs that were distributed on disc. Right. You've got the, the music library services, and uh, we know that Lou White and Ann Leaf were making recordings uh, as early as 1935, mm-hmm. and the labels, the catalog says, Lou White and the Paramount Theater Organ. I have no idea which organ oh. that was. It could have been either either one in the in the Paramount building. But uh, those were early music library recordings. Certainly, though, uh, organ was used much earlier to accompany radio programs that were live and pre-recorded. The first one that was to use organ was Amos and Andy back in 1928. I uh, don't know who was the first organist there, but Gaylord Carter became the organist for that program in 1936. Ooh, now, would you happen to have a copy of that recording? I do not. I do not. But we do have a recording, uh, another recording by Gaylord Carter called Buck Fever, which was one of his own compositions. What did you think of that? Very energetic. Very. <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> I almost thought I was listening to an accompaniment to a silent movie. Yes, that's what I, that, yes, I think that's, that must be related to some of his movie improvisation. <laughs> It'd be like theme number five. And do you know which organ he was playing on? No, I do not. Not identified. Hmm. Now, clearly organs were popular with radio stations during the 1930s and 40s, but that's somewhat due to an organist being much cheaper than an entire orchestra, big stations. They had organs and bands, right? So who precisely needed transcription services? Well, they would have been smaller radio stations that couldn't afford to have their own in-house musicians. But they could also take advantage of recordings of of big-name artists that they couldn't have had locally through these recordings. And they could program their their broadcast day as they saw fit Uh, because they weren't tied to the timing of a network feed. Okay, that makes sense. Right, time to get a little bit technical. I don't want to go too deep on this show because it's only a short program. But uh, I saw those transcription discs that George Wright cut on the Grant Union High School organ. Uh, They weren't your usual discs. Uh, Could you just describe them to the listeners? Yes, yes. Uh, Most transcription discs, rather than being 10 or 12 inches or 25 to 30 centimeters in diameter were actually 16 inches in diameter, 41 centimeters. And uh, they were recorded on both sides, as most records, but the typical music library disc had completely different artists on each side. There was no connection. Uh, You might have George Wright on one side and Vincent Lopez Orchestra on the other. And they they weren't designed to be played as a unit. Each track was separate. There wasn't even a a leading groove between them. So think of it as just a a random collection of tracks by a given artist on one side. 
were they mostly vinyl? I mean, these were 33 and a third, weren't they, on this system? Very different to the commercial 78s being pressed at that time. Yes, the vinyl was uh, certainly more durable and provided a much quieter surface. And it's interesting that the transcriptions, I have one going back as far as 1941 on vinyl, while the, the typical 33 and a third phonograph record wasn't introduced until 1948 on vinyl. So the public didn't see any vinyl records until 48, but it was adopted much earlier in the uh, radio transcriptions. So I'm curious, during your research, did you come across any surprises? Uh, For instance, hearing an artist playing in a completely different style, specifically for these transcription discs? Well, I did. It was completely unexpected. Uh, This was really a big surprise. Uh, Dick Liebert, when I first heard his transcription recordings, which he made many of, I had not heard him play like that before. He really seemed to be at one with the studio organ at Radio City in the Rockefeller Center. And uh, it's quite interesting playing. That's not the Dick Liebert I know. In fact, I almost thought I was listening to uh, one of the hot rhythm organists from the 30s and 40s in the UK, like uh, Dudley Bevan or even a little bit of Sydney Torch thrown in there from time to time. No. uh, And interestingly enough, in these transcriptions he made, you don't hear the same unique rhythm things used over and over again very often. They're very different. He was very creative in his variations. On these tunes. Do you think it's possible that there was some kind of directive from the producers of these labels that said, look, this is what we want? That's hard to say. I know he, uh, he did play quite a bit live on the radio in the 1930s. 
I don't, we don't have any recordings of that. But um, yeah, it's really hard to say. Of course, that's this kind of hot rhythm playing might be a little lost in the acoustic of the uh, music hall. Well, he certainly knew that instrument well, as it was yeah. a practice organ for the uh, organists in the main theatre. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, one of the APS discs that you showed me was made of bright red vinyl. Was this colour a way to distinguish them from the competitors? Well, it certainly does distinguish them. They're quite striking to look at. Other companies also made some records in red and some other colors. And even some, uh, even a, I've seen one that had a mottled yellow and black mottled pattern. But for all I can tell, the or what I've been able to find out is that black is supposedly the best surface, best color from a surface noise point of view. Clearly, a lot of companies sprung up in the wake of Muzak's success. Can you name one or two of them off the top of your head? Sure. We've already been talking about uh, Muzak and the Associated Program Service. Uh, Capitol Records had one. Langworth Recorded Music Service. McGregor. CSAC. Standard Program Library was a big one. Thesaurus was the, quote, radio recording division, close quote, of NBC. United Transcribe System, and the World Program Service. Well, we've heard a couple of organists so far. Do we know how many artists actually recorded discs for these services? Well, I can only go by the sample that I have and what I've been able to find in some listings of, uh, of transcriptions. I've, a third, I've counted 30 so far. I noticed in that list, uh, Don Baker was in there. I won't mention them all. Many of the artists I've never heard of, including George Crook and another artist who's coming up shortly. There's Johnny Duffy as well, a firm favourite of mine. Now, the next artist we're going to hear, uh, he recorded on the McGregor label. Was this a big company or one of the smaller uh, independent labels? They appear to be independent. M- most of these labels I mentioned, at least based mm-hmm. on the nomenclature on their, their labels, mm-hmm. were independent. Mark, would you introduce the next track and tell us a little bit about the artist? Sure, sure. This is Castles in the Sand, played by Ivan Dittmars who uh, was a uh, theater organist during the silent movie era and uh, did a lot of work in composing and arranging. In fact, I recommend your listeners look him up in the Internet Movie Database. Impressive playing and sensitive use of the organ. How many discs did he cut? Was it a couple or in the dozens? I would guess below dozens, fewer than dozens based on what I've seen. So far, all the instruments we've heard have been dry-sounding studio instruments, but Muzak did, in their infinite wisdom, take their recording gear down from the studio in the Paramount building down into the theatre to record that glorious sound. 
Apart from the godlike sounds that they actually committed to tape in these recording sessions that we'll hear in the next track, can you think of a good reason why they chose to record this next artist in the downstairs theatre instead of the studio instrument in the same building, given the fact that the theatre would present engineers with a lot more challenges than, say, that of a controlled studio environment? This particular artist had already done recording for King Records in 1950, it's around the time when this all took place. So there had been precedent for using the organ in the, in the theater, but uh, I really don't know, you know any details of uh, why that came about because so many recordings were made in the Paramount studio and very few in the big house. That's uh, a good question as to how that came about. Well, many listeners will be well aware of this next artist's output on this instrument, but hopefully a few of you will be less familiar with this track. George Wright at the New York Paramount on the 436 Wurlitzer. I should add, he made lots of recordings for associated transcriptions at this time. In fact, in the correspondence with Eric Reeve that's been published in one of Bill Cole's books, George notices, he says, I have recorded so many tunes for associated transcriptions that I've really lost track of all of them. He really churned them out, didn't he? Yeah. And for the, you know, for the writer files, these show a George early in his career, and you can hear him trying out all sorts of writerisms as he polishes his arrangements. For me, they're among my favourites. I yeah. think during this period, for those short few years from 1948 onwards, when he was staff organist at the Paramount, he beckoned forth a sort of heaven down from those organ chambers. So, Mark, I've stumbled across a possible connection between George Wright and the creator of the Wired Music System. 
According to the source, Major General Squire, a pilot himself, knew the Wright brothers, who of course were related to George. Now, do you know if Bill Cole covered this in his biography of George? I don't specifically recall, but I'm sure if it happened, it's in Bill's book. Maybe I now know something that Bill doesn't know about George. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, let us know. It wasn't just pipe organs being committed to these discs. Electronics got a look in too. Some were more, shall we say, entertaining than others, and uh, see what you think of this snippet of playing. the artist, Mark, and what was that all about? Well, the artist was Eddie Dunstetter, and uh, in an approach that I do not associate with him, particularly some of his later or, or other Hammond work at breakneck speeds, uh, and other and other you know more uh, subtle playing, but I've never heard anything like that before, uh, and it goes on for hours, just the same, boom, boom, boom. Do you think this is just a case again of the labels directing the organist saying, this is what we want, um, you get paid, so you just play it? I'm, I'm sure it was. In fact, uh, George Wright made a similar comment about the Sister Slocum records he made for King. He didn't want to make those records in that rinky-tink piano and spoons style, but they paid him, so, you know, he did it. And, it, and it's fun, you know, it's not, not something I play regularly. Mark, you mentioned in an earlier conversation that there was a significant connection between Muzak and one of the founding members of the American Theatre Organ Society. Could you tell us something briefly about that? Sure. Richard Simonton is a well-known name in the history of theatre organ. The formative meeting of the American Theatre Organ Society took place in his living room in 1955 with various theatre organ dignitaries in attendance including Richard Vaughn of Hi-Fi Records and Buddy Cole. Well, in 1939, Dick approached the Muzak Corporation about creating a franchise structure, and he actually purchased seven franchises for the Western states, which he held on to until the 1970s. One has to wonder whether Dick's uh, initiative in suggesting franchises led ultimately to the company's success and longevity. Interesting. Besides Major General Squire delivering music directly into the homes in the U.S., do you know if this was happening anywhere else in the world? Yes, in fact, uh, the story story was similar. These systems began before radio was widely adopted in the home. The the one that I know the most about was in the Netherlands. It was called the Radomroep system. (laughs) That's very catchy. Which, Which means wired broadcasting. And uh, that system was in operation until at least 1960, which uh, very unusual. I found evidence of a similar system in Germany, but that died out, you know, in the 30s as soon as uh, radio became more common. But uh, Holland stuck with it, and it was a, a, a dial-in. Uh, you could pick multiple channels from a wired system of radio stations. And how were they delivering music down the line? Were they using a similar transcription disc system? You know... The ones that I know for sure were later in the 50s and early 1960s, they were using reel-to-reel tape for their source. But they must have used uh, some kind of disc technology in the times before. During our chats before the show, you mentioned to me that there was a particular artist that you know of who recorded for this wide system in the Netherlands. Can you tell us something about him? His name was Piet van Egmont. And he had a varied career ranging from Bach to orchestral transcription on the organ to bona fide, what I would consider bona fide theater organ playing. Quite a varied artist. And do you have a track of him? Yes, we've got one coming up, a piece written by Sidney Torch called Fandango. 
and he's playing it on the original Fort uh, traveling molar when it was installed in a chapel for the BBC. Van Egmond. What did you think of that, Mark? I think it's great. And it, that was actually an orchestral piece that Sidney Torch wrote. So you actually heard a transcription for the organ in that case. Robust, solid playing there. And it sounded quite decent in that room, which you said was a chapel. Yes, yes, it was a chapel. And um, sometimes they used a very early form of synthetic reverb, uh, echo chamber, that on some of the tracks that I have, is really obnoxious. It really sounds awful. In fact, there might have been a little bit of that here, but uh, no doubt some of that was natural acoustics in the room. Well, it was good to hear the Ford Moller traveling organ played like that. I'm sure Reg would have approved. Going back to electronics, George Wright played Hammond and piano together in a very effective combo. Did he switch labels for this setup? Yes, he did. He made these Hammond recordings on the Thesaurus label, which was the radio recording division of NBC. He also used a Novacord from time to time for the solo voices. Well, here is one of those recordings with a piece titled Who If Not You?
very bright and breezy Hammond piano combination playing there. Mm -hmm. Yes. Some of the well-known recording artists of the day flaunted their recording contracts with a use of a pseudonym. Can you tell us something about that? Yes, and, and interestingly, sometimes they used a pseudonym when they weren't switching from one label to another. For example, the, the Gaylord Carter we heard earlier was actually released under the name Chester Gay. Gaylord used the same name, Chester Gay and Gaylord Carter, on the same record label. So I don't know why he would do that. And in an unusual variation, Wilson Ames on the World Program Service was actually not a person, but three or four different organists that would show up under the same name. Again, uh, there must have been some logic to that uh, for, for radio stations that wanted to program perhaps a wide variety of organists, but just have one listing in the newspaper, you know, one name, Wilson Ames. Yes, and I wonder if listeners were actually aware that they were listening to different organists under the same name from week to week. Well, the artists, the artists were very good ones, some of the leading ones, and I could... I knew there was something wrong, something fishy here, because some were better than others until I find I found some documentation that that actually was the case. It was different artists. Well, as an archivist, that must be fascinating, discovering information like that. Well, let's have a listen to one of these artists and uh, see if our more astute listeners recognise the player. didn't know who that was who would you think it was if you know what I mean well I could almost think it was Jesse Crawford mm, me too uh, I wouldn't guess the person who it actually was which according to the record label 
was Ann Leaf. I think we're in the same boat, though. But the record label says Audrey Lynn. Uh, and I found a article in a, the 1980 theater organ written by Lloyd Kloss. It's a, a theater organist's as composer's series of three articles. And he verifies there that Audrey Lynn was, in fact, a pseudonym for Anne Leaf. It's not identified on the label, but it sure sounds to me like the 421 Wurlitzer in the New York Paramount radio studio. It really does. It, it had quite a distinctive consistent sound over the years. Yes, yes. Well, let's listen to another of these mystery organists, but I think this time there are enough call signs to give it away. That was Edwin Lamar, also known as Buddy Cole. Here's a case where he was no doubt flaunting a contract situation. He used Edwin Lamar on the standard label and Buddy Cole on the capital label. In both cases, the organ was the eight-rank Robert Morton in his home, the first recording organ he used for his legendary recordings. So, Mark, I presume radio stations would order a selection of recordings Were they rented or were they purchased outright? These recordings were leased and they're all labeled that they remain the property of the company that made them. And um, I also found an interesting account of a cabinet. This apparently was the initial collection of of transcriptions that were sent to a radio station. And they came in a custom-made wooden cabinet designed just for the right size to hold them. And it had all kinds of uh, cross-reference information, paper-based, of course, to help people find what they wanted to find in there because they're not really ordered in any particular way. And uh, so as far as I know, after the initial shipment, then the companies would send periodic uh, additional recordings on a subscription basis. Unless you've actually picked up one of these 16-inch discs, you don't realize how much heavier they are than the regular discs. Yes, they are. It's, It's surprising they're uh, just by virtue of their increased diameter uh if you have you know a foot's worth of lps i can i can pick that up you know i don't want to go jogging with it but uh if you have a foot's worth of these transcriptions uh i'm not going to pick that up they're very heavy among your list of some 30 known organists there was another artist under the name of wright can you tell us something about him yes that was ken wright and he recorded uh, quite a bit on the uh, Kilgan Theater Organ in radio station WKY in Oklahoma. In, in, I'm sorry, in Kansas, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Now that organ is uh, in the Oklahoma History Center. Well, here is Ken on a Kilgan playing I Have But One Heart. Mm-hmm. 
Vibraphone bringing that track to a close. I don't think I've heard many Kilgans before. Was that a particularly good sounding one? I haven't heard many Kilgans either, but uh, I like the sound of that organ. I understand it is outstanding in the uh, the new Oklahoma History Center. As an archivist, is there a sort of holy grail of transcription discs? Well, this is just from in my opinion of this particular recordings. I don't even know if they exist, but. Uh, your listeners may recall that some Royal Typewriter Hour recordings surfaced several years ago featuring not only Jesse Crawford, but Helen Crawford. Uh, there's just a, just like three or four of them that, that have been found, and I always check, I always ask people I run into who know anything about transcriptions if they have any Royal Typewriter Hour recordings or ever even heard of it. Those seem to be very obscure, probably uh, due to, in part, their, their age, because the ones we have came out in 1931 and most of the shellac records of that time, the transcription records have been destroyed. What a tragedy. Let's listen to the lesser heard Crawford now taken from one of those rare Royal typewriter hour transcription discs. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, the Royal typewriter hour, Louis A. Witten speaking. When you purchase a Royal portable typewriter, you are buying more than a machine to write your letters and notes you are acquiring an entirely new method of expression. A royal portable opens fresh avenues of thought. It creates a new approach to clarity of idea. With the royal portable, all writing is done quickly and spontaneously, and far more easily than by hand. Our eyes turn to the mighty Wurlitzer, and we find Mrs. Jessie Crawford ready to play for you several of the season's most popular melodies. Hello, beautiful. Truly, Wabash Moon, and tie a little string around your finger. She really thrashed the hell out of that organ in that hot rhythm number there. Incredible. 
Oh, yes, yes. And her ballad playing was top-notch also. It was a shame that her obvious talent was hidden in the shade of her husband's spotlight. Right. That's my understanding, that he did not want her to uh, have the spotlight. And what a tragedy to us. I mean, how many recordings did she make, not including those that she cut for the Royal Typewriter Hour? Oh, only one? She accompanies Bing Crosby on a commercial record? Uh, Is that the only one? That's the only one I can think of. Well, we're coming to the end of the show now. It was opened by Jesse Crawford and nicely closed by Helen. Well, the Muzak Corporation still exists today, albeit under a different name of Mood Media. And uh, although it's a shadow of its former self, the company has left a superb legacy of music for us to enjoy by artists that would have otherwise gone unrecorded. And it's thanks to archivists like Mark Renwick, who are preserving and archiving all this material. Well, that just leaves me now to thank our special guest for coming on the show. Mark, thank you for joining us today. We've only scratched the surface, but it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Robert. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, folks, I'll be back with you in the new year in January 2024. That's right. But in the meantime, Damon and John have a whole host of goodies lined up for you with the lead up to Christmas and the new year. Until next time, cheerio. Cheerio.